the Mac Observer's Mac Geek ad number 323 for Monday, April 4th, 2011. Good evening, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, we provide answers, we share tips, and in general... We work hard to make sure you learn you learn something new every time. Use, use that's right. And that would be uh, the royal use because we like to learn too. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. That's John F. Braun, ladies and gentlemen. The, the John Fair, F. Braun. In Fairfield, Connecticut, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Uh, all right. So we have, we have a lot of great little stuff to... Uh, to go through today Lot, lots of cool little things and probably some deeper discussion because that's how we roll here uh anything to to report john before we dive right in no nothing all right no not really no it's just uh now i was having a having a good time researching a lot of these though it uh yeah it's like peeling an onion you know started looking at the problem and then got to another layer and another layer which revealed some interesting things so uh all right, well, let's start, but, uh, let's start let's with the, share. Let's start with the onion uh, from Todd. He writes, Logitech is now out of the Mac keyboard business, and my beloved Logitech DeNovo keyboard for Mac now has five dead keys. Logitech sent me a Windows keyboard to replace it, but the Logitech software won't allow me to customize the key layout. Hence, I'm stuck with the Windows key slash alt key keyboard problem. Is there a way to customize a keyboard layout either baked in or using some other utility I haven't found? Well, the good news is that I have a Logitech keyboard. So uh, I was able to, uh, to to take a look at a couple things. And as we'll talk, you may not see this if you follow the path I'm about to tell you. But Todd, I think you will. If you go into uh, system preferences and go into keyboard you may see a button that says change keyboard type. If you do, you'll click on that a little win- And if you do click on it, because this I think is going to solve your problem Todd. If it doesn't, we have option number two, but uh, if you click on that, it brings up a little wizard that sort of walks through and asks you some questions. It asks what key is above your return key, uh, you know, on the left side of your keyboard, what's just to the right of the shift or sorry, you know, what's just to the left of the space bar. And so it's trying to figure out, okay, what, you know, what keys are you seeing? And then from that, it uses a, uh, a pre-selected profile going through that might actually solve your problem. If it doesn't, there's a button and this is something I think everyone sees. There's a button in the lower right of the uh, uh, keyboard system preference pane that says modifier keys. And it's actually pretty cool because you can go through all of and and you want to make sure you select the right keyboard. If you have a laptop with a third party keyboard or an external keyboard, you want to at the tops, make sure you've selected which keyboard you're modifying or you're changing here. And then there's a list of what Apple considers the four modifier keys, caps lock, control, option, and command. And uh, and you can go through this and actually change what each of them does. And if you've only ever used Apple keyboards, this may seem very strange to want to change, you know, say option into command and command into option. But in a case like Todd's, that's actually almost exactly what he wants to do. He probably uh, wants to map his alt key 
to his Windows key and his Windows key to his alt key and swapping them will make it a more natural Mac-like experience with the command key to the right and left of the space bar. Um, so that hopefully one of those two will do it. And this was a little interesting, John, because when I told you about my solution, you said, what are you insane? That's right. <laughs> yeah, that is. what. You no, said. well, no, I, I didn't say that. No. I, I say that to you other times, other times. not this time, though, because right. I didn't think you were insane. I think you were just um, Maybe hallucinating. No. Uh, you never know. Yeah. I mean, somebody slipped something in your, in your tea. In my or, tea. Uh, who knows? That's right. It's mint tea today, though. So I'm, I don't think I'm hallucinating today, John. So Yeah. No, I just had green tea so far. Okay. So, but I'm out of coffee. I have to get coffee. So um, here's the thing. So I did what you said, Dave, and I looked and I didn't see a change keyboard type button. Well, isn't that weird? So then I started digging around here thinking, what is going on? And this is and, the, the, and the reason you didn't thing. see that is because you only have Apple branded keyboards plugged in. And uh, right. As far and, as I can tell, yes, because yeah. so here's a few suggestions. So okay. number one. So I started breaking out the Google Foo as we always do. And one thing I found is that some people had run into this problem where they would not see this button. Okay. So one potential solution there is a plist file, library, preferences, com.apple.keyboardtype.plist. One suggestion was get rid of this restart. That didn't reveal the button, but certainly worth looking at in case you do not get this button and you expect it. Right. Then the other thing is, well, then, you know, I did a bit more digging and, you know, there's this little program, Dave, which I think is the program that is run. Okay. Called Keyboard Setup Assistant. Sounds like it could be. Yeah. Where is this program, you may ask? <laughs> where is this program, John? And I'm going to tell you where it is because I, I and running it is kind of weird. So it's in system, library, core services. And there's a whole bunch of good stuff in sure. core services. They want to be careful. And the, the interesting thing is that there's something called keyboard setup assistant. But if I tried to double click on it, it wouldn't run it. Huh. It's kind of weird. So I decided, well, let, let me dig into it a little bit because like many programs, it's a package. So sure. I said, show package contents, click on the contents folder, click on Mac OS, and it shows you what I guess is the Unix executable for that, which is keyboard setup assistant. So double clicked on it, brings up a terminal window. And I think here's why it didn't run. And you, you see a bunch of text on the screen, but it says before terminating, no unknown keyboard connected. Terminating. Uh, so, so, okay. So either that program or the preference pane uh, or the, the system preference is smart enough as this indicates when I ran it manually and it spit that out. It's smart enough to know, John, you, you have an Apple, you, you have an Apple keyboard. You don't have a, a foreign keyboard. Right. So, but, but that's also uh, core services. You know, we got to dig into that someday because there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, a lot of things that you run are buried in there, but be careful. Well, not, not just running things. I mean, the worst that could happen, like with me, is that they don't run unless you dig in a little deeper and you figure out why. Now, the only other suggestions that I did come up with, now, number one, there are some handy things that are normally, I don't think, shown. But if you do go to the keyboard system preference, one thing you will see, Dave, which I think could be helpful for some people, is a little box saying show keyboard and character viewer. Okay. And depending on what you have installed, uh, the keyboard viewer basically shows you your keyboard and what keys it thinks you have. And if you hold down certain keys, they'll light up on that. And I think if you click on the keys, it'll it'll press them as well. It's like a virtual keyboard. So that may be handy for some people. And then there's also a character viewer, which uh, 
again, not really related to the question, but I think something useful character viewer viewer will show you almost every single character that you can generate some without some, you really have to press a number of keys on the keyboard, but it'll show you a bunch of characters and you can click on an insert button or insert the character in question, but that's not something that's normally shown. And then the last thing is that you can also, and I think these are keyboard layouts and I don't know if this applies in this case, and that they change the place where they put this in the OS. But right now it's in language and text. So if you go to language and text, I believe, and you go to input sources, what you will see on the left is a whole, pretty much a whole bunch of countries. And I think it's pretty much country specific keyboard, but it has Dvorak here. And then one suggestion, though, I don't know if it, if it would work in this case, is that you may be able to get the an older Logitech installer and maybe you can yank a resource file out of there and maybe it'll put it into this list of, well, you know, um, cause I say Dvorak, which is not a foreign language. It, it's just right. a different, different keyboard layout. Way. That's right. So it got me thinking maybe this is with the right type of file and I, I didn't dig in too, too deep. Yeah. Yeah. The Logitech utility isn't going to, I, I think for the most part, what the Logitech utility does is, is just tells the OS to provide this mapping, uh, at right. least in terms of in terms of that. It then also has some other features like letting you, uh, uh, you know, launch different apps and, you know, with with custom buttons and that sort of thing. And and you could probably approximate that with something like Keyboard Maestro if uh, mm. if, if you can't get, get the uh, Logitech utility to to do it. Uh, John, before we jump on to Larry, I want to mention something I just saw here. As usual, because I'm the one that records the show, at least the, the version that we plan to release, John records a backup. Uh, I'm always aware of what's going on with my CPU on my uh, on my Mac here. And, and if I see something like iStat menu spike or higher than normal, I take a look at it. So I took a look at it quickly while you were uh, talking about this keyboard stuff here, John. And I noticed that FSCK underscore HFS was running and taking up a good chunk of the CPU. Now that is the essentially is the utility that is uh, run when repair disk is clicked inside or verified disk is clicked inside of disk utility. Unfortunately, I don't have disk utility running, so I don't really have uh, an answer there. Uh, so I looked a little bit deeper and I went into activity monitor and I sorted the call, the list in activity monitor by the first column for me, which is PID. The reason I did this was because this would then tell me at what point in time this thing uh, launched, at least in relation to when I launched other apps, because Typically, as each new process is launched, the PID is increased. So presumably things with newer PIDs were launched afterwards. Things with older PIDs were launched before. And the first thing I noticed was that something called disk images dash helper was launched just before this. And then hmm. HDI eject D just before that. And finally, backup D uh, right before that. Backup D, of course, is time machine running. I looked in the uh, and I was going to ask you what was going on and, and what you thought was going on. But then I looked in the time machine menu and I see it says verifying backup. So something along the lines decided to make my time machine decide it had to, uh, what? to verify you know, my backup. You know, I got to say, I've seen that happen on occasion and I can't figure out what causes uh, whether it does it every X days or X weeks. But I've, I've seen that, too. I, I know I didn't explicitly tell time machine. Right. 
to do a verify because as you and I discussed, if you uh, if you hold down the uh, option key, yeah. and click on the menu, you can say verify backups. But right. That's an explicit operation. I've run into this too, actually. If anybody knows why it, yeah, I don't know if it saw if it saw some corruption or yeah. or just does it every month or just just to be, you know, I I don't know. It, wow, um, good catch. Yeah, I, I, I like the invest. You know, I like especially your tip about uh, PIDs because, yes. yeah, looking, of course, kernel task, which is the, you know, first process is zero and right. then launch D is one and launch D launches everybody else. Right. And and yeah, I, I, I like that. And I, I think eventually, yeah, the numbers. Well, no, I guess they always no, will be increasing. No, they'll recycle. Or as old ones get killed. Off. OK, as old ones get killed off. But I do notice classes. No, it won't. It it won't go back in and fill numbers in as old ones get killed off. But once it oh, hits right. whatever the PID limit is, it then it circles back around to the beginning. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Because I see there are some in the, yeah, in the, in the single digits and then the double digits and then triple and then four. And it looks like the four digit ones are typically a user. Yeah. No. My, my problem is uh, if I look in the console log. Uh, about backup D because I figured I'd see if it said anything and it, it doesn't, but uh, I don't know. Well, at the very least when I did see this, it would say, I think verifying though that may have scrolled off into uh no, it says it, it says running backup verification, but it gives yeah. no oh, indication okay. as to, as to why. Okay. That, that's the same thing I saw. Yeah. I, I would see the line saying, okay, I've started doing this for you, but <laughs> the other, the other thing that's weird and then, and then we'll get back to the show, but, but this is oh, yeah. sort of odd is when time cap, you know, I run a, a backup to a time capsule. So it mounts the, uh, the backup destination as a network volume. And it appears in my finder sidebar, there is no backup destination volume appearing in my finder sidebar. So I have a feeling that, uh, that something has run amok here, but I'll, uh, I think, I think we're going to be able to make it through the show. So, uh, so I will, I will leave it at that and we'll, We'll dig into it later. My, my guess is that what I'm going to wind up doing is killing off the disk images dash helper process once I realize that it's not going to stop Dude. running. Um, I've seen this before on other machines, not never on this one. But, uh, you know, I think I think that'll I think that'll fix us. So moving on to Larry. Mm-hmm. Larry writes, I use online websites to pay my bills and have created shortcuts I keep on a desktop folder. My problem is that the icons for these sites, State Farm, for example, change to a generic HTTP with an at sign uh, icon. Very boring and not unique. I've tried the file info copy paste solution that you have mentioned in the past with company logos I've downloaded without success. Web searches haven't helped either. So I've turned to the pros. So the method that what, what he's talking about is he's got these icons on his finder. They happen to be from these websites, but what we're going to talk about here doesn't really, uh, it doesn't matter what, what kind of file it is. In fact, it could be a disc if you wanted to change your hard drives icon or even an external drive. And the method that he talks about, uh, is to first create the shortcut, then find the image that you want to use. And if you find it on the web, you can, uh, either right click or control click on it and choose copy. And then, in the finder, now you've got that image on the clipboard. So go back to the finder, find and highlight the shortcut that you have created, and then go uh, to the file menu and choose get info. You'll see a, it's actually kind of a fun box if you've never looked at this before. And you can, you can have a whole lot of fun looking through all the different things and seeing what you can change here. But 
you're for this, you're looking at the very, very top in the upper left hand corner. You'll see the images current icon, or at least a small representation of it and highlight that and then choose edit paste. That should put it in. Now, it sounds like Larry has tried this and it won't work. So, uh, John, I'm thinking that there's there's either a cache file or maybe one of those uh, hidden DS underscore store files uh, that's causing trouble. Although I'm not I'm not certain that DS store files would be the right thing here. E- either way, I think Onyx would be the would be the tool to run through and have it clean this stuff up. And, and that might fix it. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on fixing it, John? I'm with you. Mm. It should. Yeah. I mean, the, both machines I have here, they, uh, you know, there's no problem. Right. Doing a get info and clicking on the icon and uh, you can see it highlight. Okay. So if he's, if he's having trouble doing that, maybe permissions, but I would think more, there's some, just some finder cache file or something that's, that's gone, gone run amok. Right. Yeah. Anything. Yeah, I guess. All right. I mean, the only thing I noticed is that these are interesting little files here. And that if you do open something up and do a get info and click on that little icon and copy it. And here's something you need to try. It it may be handy at some point in the future. But if you go into preview and then say new from clipboard, you're going to see what's in this file. This is a special type of file, Dave. It's an ICNS file. And it actually has a lot of images or it should have a lot of images. In you're it. you're so talking you about see one. An, an icon file, um, not a customized one, but one that perhaps came with an application or, or yes. something along those lines. Okay. So, yeah, just thought I pointed out is that preview understands uh, an icon file. And if you, if you, again, get info on something, click on the icon that's in the get info window, copy that and then go to preview and say new from clipboard what you should see is all of the things that make up an icon, which is not just one piece of info. It, it, it's variable, which you'll see when you're using the Mac in that if you display icons larger, yeah, that they come in different sizes. I think the 80 by 80, I think 128 by 128 maybe, and all the way down to something really tiny, right. including the thing you see in the, uh, the get info. But I'm with you. I mean, it, sh- it, it is pretty portable. I mean, whatever's on the clipboard should I, I tried it with multiple apps and when, okay. whenever I did again info and did a paste, whatever I just recently copied was pasted into, you know, it's, it's possible that whatever image type you happen to be grabbing, Larry is not compatible with becoming an icon. Now I thought the OS was, would, would do the conversion on the fly, but perhaps that's the issue. And if it is preview could also be your friend go into preview paste or get that image on the clipboard, do the same new from file, new from clipboard, and then uh, choose file, save as, and save it as a PNG or a JPEG file. And that would uh, certainly eliminate that part of, of any stumbling block you might have. You know, I don't, I, I mean, I just tried it now. I, I just tried it with a, uh-huh. a web page with an image and uh, I'm not sure what it is off, off the top of my head. Right. Well, no, let me see. Open image, a new window. I'm going to. Yeah, it'll tell you. Well, yeah, that, that will. No, it should. Yeah. No, here we go. Okay. It's a JPEG. Okay. So okay. I was able to copy a JPEG from Safari, went to the finder in the get info window, did a paste and it just pasted it. Yeah. So yeah, I assume like you, that the, the OS is smart enough to convert whatever. So it works for JPEG. I think when I was doing it before it worked for PNGs, okay. uh, TIFFs, I know it, it works for. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. Huh. All right. Uh, Let's talk about our first sponsor for the show, which uh, is Smile. 
at smilesoftware.com. And today we get to talk about Text Expander. And you get to hear about Text Expander, which is really cool because it is, it has the added benefit of not just being our sponsored utility here, but one of my favorite utilities. So it makes it really easy to talk about it. The idea behind Text Expander is there are things that all of us type repeatedly. It might be as simple as our names. It might be uh, a big, long signature. It might be our mailing address. We also uh, might be programmers that are constantly typing different things. Uh, let's say you're creating a, a web page uh, and you're programming in HTML and you want to build an anchor tag. And so you've got to, you know, open bracket a, you know, uh, equals and all that stuff, a, a space href equals, and then you got to put the quotes and then close the quotes after you're done and then close it and then close the tag. Well, text expander can come to the rescue. So the idea is you take these things that you put into uh, your emails or whatever, all these bits and pieces of text, and you put them into text expander exactly once. And then you assign them a shortcut. So for example, for me, I have uh comma D H A D D as my mailing address. And when I do that, it comes out as a, you know, whatever it is, four or five, I think I even have my phone number at the bottom of it. So I have five lines and it's my mailing address. And I, a don't have to type it when I need it. And B know that I'm not going to, you know, fat finger the, uh, the zip code and have it go off instead of to Durham, New Hampshire, maybe to Durham, North Carolina, because that would be, you know, bad. So makes things really handy. I have signatures in there. As I mentioned, you can also do, uh, HTML and, and other languages too. In fact, they've got a library you can import for HTML. So you don't even have to create the shortcuts. And for what I described before, instead of typing that whole tag, I just do command, uh, sorry, comma a and boom, it builds the tag and places my cursor right where I want it to be. Uh, very, very cool stuff. You can have it place the contents of the clipboard where you want it to be. And I do that sometimes when we're creating bits and pieces of our show notes here makes life really, really easy. Uh, that's text expander on the Mac. And uh, of course it's available from smilesoftware.com for as a free trial, but, uh, and then, it, and then, uh, when you're hooked, it's 35 bucks, actually 34 95 and they have a 90 day money back guarantee. They also have text expander touch, which is very, very interesting because the app by itself, uh, will let you sync your text expander snippets with your Mac and, then also create notes and email and in, inside its editor, you can uh, you can create and use your snippets and you can edit snippets there and, and all of that good stuff. But what's really cool is they've partnered with a lot of other app vendors to put text expander touch technology inside the app. Now, you have to have uh, text expander touch, not just whatever app uses it. So for five bucks, you buy their four ninety nine, you buy text expander touch. And then if you're using an app like Twitter or uh, express for WordPress or blog press. There's a huge list. If you use busy to do uh, it, it's in there too. It's in uh, the things app, all sorts of these apps support text expander. So now you can use your same snippets inside your favorite iOS app. So all of this uh, is available at smilesoftware.com, And I highly encourage you to check it out. It's, it's one of those utilities that, I simply can't live without. And that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Moving on to David. Uh, 
David writes, every time my time machine backup runs on my MacBook Pro, it says it has to backup right around three and a half gigabytes. Even if it's just the next hourly backup, it says to need to it needs to backup data in that size range. It's not possible, I say. Data on my laptop doesn't come close to changing that much or that frequently. I've even gone as far as blowing away the existing time machine backups and starting over, and it still tells me I have to back up around three and a half gigs every time. I ask, does Time Machine have a log file or something similar where I can see what files are being backed up? John, you got some help for Dave? Absolutely. All right. So, David, there's much that is hidden from you, but we're going to tell you how to reveal what is hidden. Okay. This is getting very philosophical. It is. That's right. <laughs> but no, there is. So he is absolutely correct in that if you, if you look in the concept, Time Machine does what it does and it does it well, but it doesn't tell you a lot about what's happening. If anything, you look in the console and it tells you the size or the approximate size of the data it thinks it's backing up, but that's it. It doesn't go into any detail. So how do you know? Well, fortunately, if you go to our friends at Charles soft who make pacifist, which is just a great utility that I like if you want to deal with uh, install packages, but they also make a little something. Now it's, it's quick and dirty. It, it's not a fancy interface, but it works. And it's called Time Tracker. And what Time Tracker does is it shows you all of your time machine backups and it shows you what files were backed up. So once I showed David the light, he got back to us and said, and, and maybe you can pick it up, Dave, because sure. uh, th this is a two-part question. So we revealed what is hidden to David and, and David did find what was hidden and what was being backed up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this gets interesting. It was it was backing up his all mail folder from within Gmail. And that folder has everything mail you've received mail you've sent mail you have filed uh, pretty much anything that's not spam or forcibly deleted lives in this folder. And the problem, John, is, of course, this or this, sorry, this file, because that's really what your Mac sees it as. And. This file, every time it's updated, it needs to be backed up again. Just like a Word document, if you go make a change to a Word document, it backs up a whole copy of the Word doc document. Not just the change, but the whole copy. And then it, you can go back and forth in history. Of course, most files aren't three and a half gigs in size, but this one is. And, and this is in Thunderbird. This would not be as much of an issue in mail because, and Thunderbird's a third-party mail uh, program. It's actually a pretty good one. Some people prefer it to Apple's mail. It's available for free. It's from the same people that built Firefox. Mm. Right. Isn't that right, John? I believe it's a, yeah, I believe it's based on, on some of the same code. So. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but it, it stores mailboxes apparently, apparently as one file on your Mac mailboxes are actually just folders with special files in them, but it's one file per message. So, uh, it can, it really, it was built so that Spotlight could properly uh, scour through these things and index these things. But, um, but you know, it also has the added benefit of, of being able to back them up individually for time capsules. So you're not re-backing up the same thing over and over again. But, uh, but once David found this, of course, John, he could, uh, he could skip it from his time machine backup. Yes. And, and that was it. Yeah. Good. So, uh, yeah, so we got it. He was very happy. So, so he, uh, yeah, just didn't know that, that this email program was doing that for him. Right. 
or it was, yeah, it was true. And you know, I've seen the same thing and you probably seen the same thing too is until I got a time tracker. I think I, every time it would back up. So first I used something else, which you may want to do also is time machine editor. I don't like the hourly thing, especially if you're wireless. Yeah. It, it's too often for me. Yeah. So I, I have some, uh, yeah, I think it's time machine editor and I change it every four hours, which, which I think throughout the day that, that that's enough. And you know, of course, eventually they get, you know, folded into a single backup, a daily and then a weekly and then a monthly, but or as it purges them, but hourly is way too often. Again, I agree. If it's wireless. If if you're especially if you're wireless. If you're wired, then maybe not. But even then, it, it slows things down. It's it's that's it. It slows down your machine to back up. I you know you have to pick the backup interval that works for you. And and the question I always tell people to ask themselves is how much work am I willing to recreate? And uh, and if you're willing to recreate four hours of work, then and that's that's essentially what I do on on mm-hmm. mine, John. I have time uh, machine editor set to do the same four hour interval, and that that's enough because it it covers me. But by golly, I don't need to uh, I don't need to have the thing back up every single hour. It gets a little a little old. All right, all right. Moving on to Fred. Fred has an interesting problem. Fred writes. Uh, oh, let's see where where are his issues here. Ah, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, he says I have two very pressing problems, and I hope you can solve. Number one, uh, I, uh, boy, this is kind of written in a weird way. Uh, I haven't heard anyone discuss this problem when trying to sync selected photos from either Aperture or iPhoto libraries to an iPhone four or iPad. Uh, I'm running the latest iPhone four and iPad to iOS. When I try and sync a selection of photos from either Aperture or iPhoto, I encounter an error negative 50. This occurs when I sync from either my Mac Pro uh, or my MacBook Pro. I spoke with the genius at the Apple bar uh, or the genius at at the Apple store, and they had me remove iPhoto, iSync, Aperture and iTunes, and then reinstalling clean copies of those apps again. Alas, this did not solve the issue. I still get the error and am, um, and am unable to sync. The second issue, which I'm going to read here because it sounds like they're related, but uh, I'm actually going to refute that uh, at the end here. The second issue, almost in the same vein, is when I try to sync my first generation Apple TV with Aperture or iPhoto. I keep all my photos on the Apple TV and then have them on a continuous display loop on a monitor in my family room. Up until a few months ago, I was able to sync Apple TV with Aperture through iTunes. Now, whenever I change my library and want to post the updates on Apple TV, the Apple TV icon in iTunes turns gray and I'm unable to sync. I have tried to reboot Apple TV, reinstalled iTunes all to no avail. However, in this case, I do not get an error negative 50. The sync just never takes place. So, John, this is a curious one. I did some searching on this and everything I found that had this error negative 50. It says an unexpected error occurred as if there are, you know, expected errors. and uh, and it says negative 50. I guess in his case, the error has become expected. So maybe they should take the unexpected away. Yes. And when every time it's come up, people have said the solution has been erasing and restoring the iDevice, either the iPhone or the iPod. So that kind of, you know, it, it's weird that he's having it on two devices and from two Macs. It kind of makes that troubleshooting, you know, initial troubleshooting decision a little bit more difficult. I think his problem is switching back and forth between Aperture and iPhoto as the source for the images. I, I don't use Aperture and, uh, and actually I don't really use iPhoto a whole lot either. So I, I'm not sure about that process, but 
my guess is that that's what screwed him up. And actually, prob- the two problems actually are related because I, I would try it with the iPhone. I'd, I'd, you know, erase and restore it and see if it works. And if it does, then do it with everything else. I'm going to make one suggestion. Well, I'm going to make two suggestions. So I'm going to make one suggestion to Apple. Stop using numerical error codes. What the hell's wrong with you? Sorry. (laughs) To me, there's no excuse to use numerical error codes. To me, that's just sloppy, lazy programming. Yeah. The number means nothing, except maybe to someone at Apple with the the list of secret error codes. Just saying that there has to be, and whether it maps to a Unix error code, which it may, I I, I didn't investigate this too deeply, but, but it just frustrates me whenever I see a number. Because that's useful to know, unless you want to keep air secret, which I don't know why you want to keep it secret. Maybe there's a good reason. All right. right. Sorry, I'm done shaking my fist. Because okay. I think it deserves a shaking of a fist. Yeah, well. Because how can we possibly solve this problem? The only thing I can think about, Dave, is we talked, with the, we talked about this in the past, is so when you're syncing from iTunes uh, to an iDevice and you're, you're syncing photos with either Aperture or iPhoto, or you could also do it, I think, with just a folder of photos, and I think we touched upon it before, but it's worth looking for this, is that there is a folder that's created called iPod Photo Cache. Oh, okay. Remember we talked about this before. Uh-huh. And my only thought, and that gets created, I believe, wherever you choose to sync your photos from. So if it's a picture, if it's a folder of pictures, then it'll be in that folder. Right. Or I'm going to assume, though I, I haven't, uh, I've only done it with a folder of pictures. I haven't done it through iPhoto or Aperture. But I'm going to assume it creates the same folder somewhere in your iPhoto or Aperture or maybe in the pictures folder as well, because typically that that's where the libraries are stored. So maybe that cache got confused. So on, on I, I would look machines? for machines. I'm just yeah, offering I know. something to look at. Yeah, no, just it's a good point. Because like, like it said, doesn't as far as yeah. I know, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but it doesn't hurt. As far as I know, it doesn't hurt to get rid of that file. It's just a cache True. and it's just there for the sync operation. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's unlikely that the problem is on the machines that are being synced with, but it could be. It's just something to try because I know that that's what happens when you sync photos. This folder yeah. gets created. Yeah. Or sync. Yeah. Sync photographs. Yeah, I agree. I know it's 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 yeah, it's a weird one. But uh, yeah, so there you go, Fred. Uh, you can actually, I guess, blowing away the cash folder is probably the least impactful of all of these. Uh, so blow that away and see what happens. And if that doesn't do it, then I would, you know, pick pick one of your iOS devices. And in inside iTunes, what you're going to do is you're going to highlight the device. And then on the first page that you see there, uh, click restore restore what what is it called john do you have an I, I, ios device connected to your mac uh not at the moment okay because it's uh yeah it's up upgrade update and and restore so click restore and that will uh that'll wipe wipe the thing out and bring it back it's the bottom of the two buttons that are in the middle of that screen mm-hmm. all right good uh robert has a question and unfortunately i don't think we have the answer he wants but it leads into an interesting discussion. Robert writes, how do I sync up the Mac app store with apps that I already own? The app store doesn't recognize apps on my hard drive that I didn't buy from the store. It would be very useful for the app store to know about and update apps that I bought through the app store before the app store went online. And as I said, Robert, 
I don't think you're going to be happy about this, but you're right. Uh, the app store doesn't let you update those apps. And when we talked to Apple about it, they made it very clear. Uh, the app store will only update apps that were installed with the app store. Now it will, in most cases, no, tell you that you already have an app installed. So if you go say to uh, buy BB edit or Yojimbo, both bare bones products, uh, those guys have, have built their apps such that they will, the app store will know that the app is on your computer, even though you didn't get it through it, but it won't let you update it. It won't let you do anything that would change it. It will just say, no, you already own this clearly because it's on your hard drive. But yeah, other, otherwise there's no, uh, there's no way to do it. I, I guess, I mean, I guess it's probably, I'm sure there's equal political and engineering reasons for not changing apps that weren't purchased through the app store. Yeah, you have any thoughts on that, John? No. Okay. Mr. Brown. No, I've, I've, I've used the app store for only one app. Oh, I'm not thrilled with it because when the app needed to be upgraded, it, uh, it did not do anything with the icon in the dock. You didn't get a little, uh, like, no, like a little no, red no. one or something. No, and I was expecting it. Cause did, yeah. So did you, at, did at you point, launch someone's... the app store? No. Oh, you have to no. launch the app store to check for updates. Well, I'm expecting the app store to kind of tell me this stuff. Well, it works similar to the way it works on iOS, which is, you know, you have to launch it to find out. They they assume that you're going to go dig around in the app store every day anyway, uh, because you want to buy all the latest and greatest stuff. So no, I don't. No, I just wanted to tell me. Yeah. Well, well, just like software update. Right. We'll check every now and then, and and it'll tell me if. Yeah, it happening. would be. I agree. That would be good if, if it went in the background. No, because what happened? Yeah, that. once I ran it. Yeah. Because yeah, somebody said, "Oh, there's an update to you know very very minor aperture update." And I'm like, "Oh, well, that's interesting. Why why isn't the uh, icon?" Right. And I'm sure technically they could. Of course yeah, they could. Little, sure. Just, you know, say, hey, anything new for this stuff? Right. This person has bought. Right. But maybe it'd be too distracting. I don't know. Yeah. If you have a lot of apps. So. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, related to the app store here, Jordan actually wrote in. And this is this is very interesting and kind of lends itself to a larger discussion. Jordan writes, I just wanted to let you know something interesting about how Spotlight and the Mac app store interact. I had disabled Spotlight due to never using it, hoping it, that it would give me just a little more performance on my aging iMac. I recently ran into an issue where the Mac App Store would not show updates on the Update tab of the store. The Purchases tab would show if there was an update to be installed, but when clicking Update, it gave me an error about the incorrect account being signed in. No one, including iTunes tech support, was able to solve this issue, but re-enabling spotlight indexing and then rebuilding the index solved all of my issues. So presumably what Jordan had done was gone into system preferences spotlight and then uh, gone to the privacy tab and dragged uh, his hard drive in there. And that would keep the system from indexing that drive. Clearly, though, that's not a good idea. And, and it's not just because of the Mac App Store. Apple, a lot of different Apple utilities rely on spotlight indexing to be enabled uh, to work properly. And and this is this is one of them. It's a handy index for it to for lots of things to use because that you don't have to go out and build your own and you don't have to scour the drive for anything. You can just go quick check the spotlight index and boom, you get all the data you need back. And that's clearly what the Mac App Store is doing. 
Uh, if it doesn't find it, though, that's bad. So unless there's a really good reason, I would say don't hide your uh, entirety of your hard drive from Spotlight. Any thoughts on that, John? I always run Spotlight. It, it's uh, I like it for my app launcher. Oh, yeah, that's what I, yeah, I use it. I use it for that too. I know a lot of people use um, (laughs) Quicksilver for that. I didn't realize, I didn't realize you were a spotlight app launcher like me. That's good. Yeah. It's just the quickest way for me. Also, well, my, the other, so, so I have two app launching strategies. One is I'll use spotlight and the other is that my dock is, is a mess because I have, I must have 30 or so icons on my dock. No, it's just, it just, are you, a doc, are you a doc zooming kind of guy? No. Oh, no. no okay. I find that annoying. Okay. Everything's really tiny, but it's not tiny. It's not so tiny that I don't know what it is. I, sure. can, I can look and, and I group them. You know, I'll have web browsers in one section and email clients or file transfer in another photography stuff in another. Right. So, so it kind of makes sense how it's laid out. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Good. Uh, do you use the uh, doc spacers? Do you know about that? Have we talked about that before? I have not. I, it's cool. What, what you, do you write? No. Feel, or is it doc preferences? I no. You got to use Onyx. It, uh, that that the, the way I do it, you have to use a third party utility. But what you can do, and it, it much easier to show. Uh, maybe we have talked about it. Maybe we haven't. But much easier to show if you can see an image. But think about how your doc is with everything just run right up next to each other. What, what would be cool and what you can do with these dock spacers that you can create in Onyx is you can put little gaps between items in your dock. So you could have, you know, your web browsers, if you, if you use a couple of web browsers, you could leave that over one. And then if you had your, you know, office suite or whatever, you could have that sort of all on its own. And the way you do it is you go into Onyx and I don't have the tab up in front of me, but I think it's on the, um, extras or it's on like the last tab. There's all these other things that you can do. And one of them is doc spacers. And you say insert uh, either a application side. So on the left side of the dock or the right side, you can have it insert a spacer. And then once it creates the spacer, you can move it all around. You just drag it around like you would anything else in the dock to arrange it. And, uh, and it works really well. I, I have them on my, yeah, uh, on my okay. machine. Look it's, at that. So parameters and then dock. Yes. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm running Onyx right now. Mm-hmm. Add spaces between the icons. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Hmm. So I'll have to try that because I see one space, which is between everybody and the trash can. Oh, okay. Oh, because you don't have anything else on the right side of your dock. Is that right? Well, no, when it fills up the whole thing, but but I noticed there is a spacer there and that's, and actually I think if you right click, that gives you turn hiding on magnification, position on screen, minimize using and dock preferences. Yeah. So what you're talking, what you're talking about there is, on the left side of your dock, there is uh, all the applications. And then on the right side, which ends right. with the trash can is where you can put documents into your dock or folders and, and various other things. Uh, of course, if you've taken all of those out, then yeah, it's just the that. trash can. Right. But you know, I put network drives that I want to mount or folders on network drives uh, over there. So it makes it really easy to get to them. Uh, and, and you can put spacers on that side too, if you want to, balance all that. Okay. Stuff I seem to remember they would by default, I think, put your documents or your downloads folder. And if you mm-hmm. clicked on it, you would get this big uh, kind of yep. s- Jack in the box thing where it would jump out and, and yeah, it just freaked me out and I that's got right. rid of it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. 
Oh, that's a good tip. All right. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that to organize things a little better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it just makes a nice visual kind of distinction mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Uh, Rick writes, he says, hi, John, I'm new to Aperture. Do you know how to select part of a photo in either copy or cut it into another? I can't seem to find the right selection tool to do it. John, there's a good reason why he can't find it. And and is it because he didn't because he didn't do any work and he didn't look at all? Uh, Well, it could be because like me. uh, Yeah, I don't know if he. uh, Well, he, he may have perused the documentation to look for this. Sure. As did I. And unless I'm missing something about how Aperture works, then the answer is there is no tool to do this. Now, wait, you're saying that's insane. Aperture. I mean, Aperture is this wonderful, you know, somewhat pricey and less pricey if you get it in the app store utility that Apple advertises as being for professional or or people that want to be professional or just serious photographers right. or people to take pictures. We, we, we won't classify who uses this because now almost anybody can buy it for 80 bucks or 79 or whatever it was. And then I thought about this and I tried this. I'm like, well, you know, let me try this, Dave. And so I went into Aperture and selected a photo and tried to select part of it to paste into another one. And sure enough, none of the tools that they have built in will do this. Huh? Isn't that weird? Now, but this touches on something that we ran into and, and I'm learning about Aperture every day and I learned something new today. So check this out. So if you go to the Aperture preferences, yeah, there's a preference section called export. And there's a category there that I had nothing selected for. And the one item in there, it's called external photo editor. Right. Mm. And iPhoto has this too. Uh, you can, you can set an external photo editor in that as well. Oh, I had not known that. Yeah. In iPhoto. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So what happens? So at least in aperture, what would happen is that, if you select, so once you select an application and a couple of the ones that you could select, like I selected preview because that's free and it comes with all Macs and preview will certainly let you highlight part of a photo and cut and paste it. So what happens is once you define an external photo editor, the other one I tried was graphic converter, which is a bit more capable than preview, but it costs okay. money. Right. But, but I could choose either one. And here's what happens uh, so it kind of gives you a hint as to the nature of Aperture. If you then click on a photo, what will happen is once you define an editor, it will then say edit with preview, for example. And once you do that, Dave, then what happens is you will see in the Aperture view, you will see the photo get duplicated, but it'll have, remember those badges we were talking about before? Yeah. What you'll get is a little badge in the bottom right hand corner of the photo and you know what the and and i'll give you a guess as to what badge it is oh it's it's that one it's the externally edited or whatever it was external uh, yeah external photo editor yeah badge yeah so here's what aperture is doing so while aperture will not i mean the only thing you could do which i imagine would be somewhat of an edit is you uh, but no not what he's asking i mean you can crop a photo Right. Or you could duplicate a photo and crop it and get a subset, but it really doesn't, I don't think Aperture is really meant to do what he wants, which is editing. Now, Preview can certainly do it. Graphic Converter can certainly do it. And I think you mentioned another utility that I, you like. I, I really have gotten to like Pixelmator. Uh, okay. It, it You know, pre, certainly Preview is free, right? And so that's, if that's going to do what you need, you're good to go. Uh, graphic Converter is cool. And I used it for a long time, but 
you know, the user interface of graphic converter is a little bit clunky. It, it's just, it, it has a lot of stuff crammed into it and it's come up with us, hmm. you know, it was an OS nine program before it was an OS 10 program. And it, it, it just, you know, it, it's UI is what it is. It's just a lot of stuff and it's all crammed in uh pixelmator has a great clean UI. Everything is like alpha channel and floating. It really feels like what Photoshop should be. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be paying. Well, some people should uh, because they may need some additional capabilities. But, you know, it's like Photoshop for the rest of us, if you will, because, you know, I don't need to pay three or four hundred bucks for Photoshop. I just need an image program that'll let me edit and, you know, do my thing. But I, I don't you know, I'm not I'm not making my livelihood with this. And even then, I'm not sure I would actually need Photoshop. But uh but I certainly don't. And Pixelmator, I don't know, it's like 30 or 40 bucks. I don't have the price in front of me, but uh, but it's it's relatively short money. It might even be 20 bucks. And uh, and it's awesome. And it's it, they, they update it pretty regularly and add new stuff. So so that's my that's my right. pitch for Pixelmator. <laughs> Great. So one learning is, yes, you can edit a photo, but it and while Aperture will keep track of it and it's aware of it, mm-hmm. its purpose is not to let you do edits of this sort. It'll certainly let you do adjustments. Uh, there's all sorts of adjustments and that was what, that's what drew me to it initially. Right. Uh, and there's a, a whole wealth of plugins, but this cut and paste, I mean, it sounds weird. You would think a program that's so capable would be able to do that, but no, they, they hand it off. Now what happens is once you create the duplicate, what you can do, and this is something we saw in an earlier show as well. And now I know what they are is that I saw photos next to each other, duplicates and, and had a little number. What that was and I've learned the proper name of it, and, and a few of you wrote in. Thank you very much. It's called a stack, and this is a way to organize things with an aperture. And what ha- so what it must have happened at one point is that I did an edit before I imported it in an aperture, and what it did is because it saw two photos that were identical. So of course it did the badge on one of them, but it also, while it did the import, created a stack for me. And uh-huh. a stack is nice because what a stack does is it lets you group photos, and it'll show you in one view how many photos are in the stack. But then if you click on the stack, it'll it'll collapse them all into one. So it doesn't clutter your screen. Cool. Uh, yeah, I got to. Well, I was going to say I got to play with Aperture. The reality is I wouldn't really do anything with it because I, I, I don't manage our photos here. So and I'm, yeah, I'm so I'm um, not to. Uh, yeah, I haven't done a lot with stacks and, and people have gave me suggestions like if you have different photos of, you know, different sizes or different photos of different parts of an event, you may want to group them using stacks. Uh, I haven't gotten to that point yet. I, I still use either albums or uh, projects to, to organize things. Cool. All right. Our second sponsor for this show, John, we have a, we have a couple more questions to, to go through here, but uh, but our second sponsor for this show is Circus Ponies at CircusPonies.com and Notebook. You've heard us talk about Notebook before if you're a listener to the show, and you'll likely hear us talk about it again. Uh, it's a pretty cool idea. The, the concept is we used to go to a class and or really into a project or anything and grab a notebook and say, okay, this is going to be my, my, like a white line notebook, you know, and this is going to be my notebook for either this class or this project or whatever it is that you're doing. And you'd start taking notes and writing all sorts of things. And maybe you'd have a little to-do list in your, in there at the front of it or the back of it of, oh yeah, I got to do this. And you scratch it off and you get it done. And, and that was really handy because, you know, you carry it around with you and you can do whatever you need to do. But of course it's, it's analog. And so while there are certain benefits to analog, there are are disadvantages in that you can't rearrange things. And if you want to put a picture in, well, you'd have to paste it in with like tape and all that. 
enter Circus Pony's notebook. It is a digital notebook. And so, yes, you can open it up and start typing in it. You can also draw with your mouse. You can pull in pictures. You can pull in like a fax and actually have it scan it and edit the text or even pulled out the text. You can pull a PDF in and put little notes and stickies on it. If you've got, you know, say a, uh, a, a book or, or something from class that you're taking, you can pull it all in. You can highlight, you can pull audio files in and yeah, you can actually use a to-do list inside this thing too. So it totally replicates that experience of having the notebook with you, especially when you take it from your Mac and put it on your iPad because they have notebook for the Mac and for the iPad. And you can do all of that stuff on the iPad too. You can download Circus Ponies for the Mac from CircusPonies.com. Uh, there is a free trial, of course, and then it's $49.95 when you want to purchase, $29.95 if you are uh, a student of any kind. Notebook for the iPad, of course, there's no free trial because that's not how the App Store works. It is $29.99 uh, from the App Store. But you can uh, you can start at CircusPonies.com and go from there. Excellent stuff. Notebook from CircusPonies.com. Uh, all right, John, moving on to, I guess we'll go to, we'll go to Chris and, uh, and, and run that one through. I think this is a pretty quick question, but, uh, but Chris writes, uh, first off a few episodes back, Dave, you mentioned that you occasionally use your iPhone to log into your machines at home and issue terminal commands to accomplish some housekeeping tasks. Could you go into a little more detail about how you accomplish that? Uh, especially if you use a specific program on the iPhone to do this. And we're actually not going to go through his second question. So we'll make it quick. Uh, I use a program called ISSH and it works on both the iPad and the iPhone. Uh, I like it. it. It it allows me to get a terminal session. So it's just like I open the terminal on my Mac, uh, but I can also use what's called VNC uh, to remote control my Mac. It's uh and, and see the screen and scroll around and open and launch apps and all of that good stuff. Um, in order for this to work on your Mac, you need to turn on, uh, if you go into system preferences, sharing, you need to turn on remote login and, uh, and either screen sharing or remote management, uh, is going to, is going to be what you need to turn on for VNC. Uh, if you turn on remote management, click computer settings and then click the button that says VNC viewers may control the screen with a password, put a password in and, uh, and then that's that that'll, uh, that'll let you connect. It, one thing I like is that multitasks now, John. So uh, I can have a terminal session or a VNC session open and then bounce out. And this is especially handy on the iPad and go do something and come back in. And as long as I come back within 10 minutes, the session is still there and everybody's really happy. So, uh, so I like that because sometimes you get to bounce around, you know, when you're in the terminal, right? Yeah. I'm looking at one here. Let's see. Uh, this one's right. 10 bucks, but you know, okay. So I have one. So, um, being the thrifty type of fellow that yeah. I am, uh, I have one on my iPhone and I don't have my iPhone in front of me, but I have my, my MacBook. And I got one, which uh, for occasional use is probably good, but yep. it's called Mocha VNC Lite. Will that do uh, SSH too, or is that just VNC? I believe it's just it's just VNC. Okay. So I, I was using it for remote admin or sure. just uh, actually originally on my iPod Touch, but then, uh, and I haven't tried it lately, but yeah. yeah so, so as you pointed out, yeah, you want to turn on the sharing, but for occasional access to a machine that's running VNC, 
uh, you know, the price is right. It's free. And then they have a full awesome. featured version for uh, six bucks. And of course we'll uh, link to those. Cool. Um, yeah, I guess on the iPhone or, you know, iPod, iPod touch, it's uh can be a little frustrating because you got uh, somewhat <laughs> yeah. limited. It's kind of a challenge to do a VNC session. <laughs> yeah. I, Just because you got to virtually scroll all over the place or I guess shrink the screen until it's, you know, it's really useless. tiny, but right. yeah. Yeah. So definitely an iPad I, I could see as a, a desirable device. For yeah. I've, that sort of I've, thing. I've only, for, you know, I owned uh ISSH before I got an iPad. So it was an easy, you know, an easy thing. Just, I just installed it. Cause of course you can run all the same apps. So I didn't need to rebuy it. So I never bothered to try any of these other VNC things. And, and, and the one in, in ISSH actually works pretty well. Um, I, you know, it's, it, it's better than I thought it would be on the, uh, on the iPad. I mean, I I've, it's actually usable. It's not just Hey, there's my computer screen and Oh my gosh, how do I interact? Because there's no keyboard or mouse on this thing. Right. And it's the mouse. That's the real issue. Not nearly as much as the keyboard. So, uh, but it, it works. I, I'd be curious to check out Mocha VNC and I, and I will just to see how that is. Cause as a free solution, that's perfect. You know, if the price is right. We always like, we always like free. You want to go on to Victor here, John? Who, yeah. who do you want to do next? Well, we had the one that I dug out from the, the past. Oh, yeah. So let's do that one. one. Yeah, no, that, that's a great one. All right. So I will read uh, David here. And that is David says, I have a really weird one for you. And I'm totally confused by this. I, I recently started using an iMac at work. I am in sales and lots of times we will send price quotes and such via email. Our company workflow is to make PDFs of those emails and save them on our local file server. So all the staff can find them rather than just who sent the email. The last couple of weeks I have uncovered a really strange quirk and I just can't figure out what is wrong. I go to open the PDF and preview and all I can see are the headers to from date, subject, etc. But then all of the text in the email is blank. If I open it on my old PC, it is fine. And when I open on a coworker's PC, it's fine. But in preview, uh, it won't show it. And he showed us a screenshot. And sure enough, that's what it, what happened. Now, the really weird one. If I email that same file to myself and use the Google Docs viewer thing that you can view to click or download uh, in the Google preview, that same PDF file opens fine uh, in Gmail. But. When I download the file and try to open in preview on my Mac, the same thing happens and it's blank. Any ideas? Cause it's driving me nuts. And John, of course, as we, as you found you, uh, you stumbled into quite a few people that were having this problem. So, uh, so hopefully this, this solution is helpful. Yes. And the solution is fact, <laughs> uh, the quick solution. Well, I offered a number of solutions, but I think the quick solution is so, so I got to give a little background. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Walk us, walk us I had, through this. So I had the document in front of me. So, so the the PDF, David sent us the PDF, which is good, right? Because solving this with just the screen snapshot would not have done it. Because here's what happened. So I had the PDF that he was having problems with. Opened it up in preview. Sure enough, the body of the document was was empty, or so I thought. Then. All right. So that was step one. So uh -huh. I I verified. Okay. So it's not just him. It's not something weird on his system. Right. Then I opened it up in Adobe Reader. Huh. And that was weird because Adobe Reader, the free Adobe Reader, yep. showed up fine in that. Okay, now this is getting weird. Yeah. So then I decided to go back to the original document. And what I did is I highlighted 
the area that appeared to be empty. Well, it wasn't empty because I would see the outline of the text that was there. All right. So now what is it? It's a font problem or that's going to be my professional opinion. Now, now, uh, so I'm with you. Well, maybe not a, a, a font related problem because hey. it worked in one program and not the other. Okay. But here's, here's the thing. And, and my understanding of PDFs and I'm leading you a little bit, but I, this is, I sort of learned something here. Uh, oh. My understanding of PDFs was that the fonts were already embedded into them. So how, how is it, how is it that, that one program could open it and see it and the other couldn't what's going on here? Well, they're not always, no, I'm I'm glad because yes, this was a, we play off each other so well. So here's what I did. So I was thinking that as well, Dave, I'm like, well, that should be an embedded font. Why can't I see it? Well, this font was not an embedded font. Now, how did I find this out? And this is where preview is lacking. Okay. But Adobe Reader is not. Is Adobe Reader, I, I forget the exact menu. I may have it in my response to them. Let me see. No, I don't. So I'm going to apologize now. Or maybe maybe you can open up a PDF with Adobe Reader and, and find it. But Adobe Reader has a section that shows you the fonts that are embedded in the document. And it will tell you if it's an embedded font or not. Okay. And this is what I did is I opened it in Adobe Reader and it showed me that the particular font in question was not embedded because the ones that were embedded and I think Wingdings was embedded okay. had in parens embedded. Got but no, it. Excellent question. So the thing is, as you're pointing out, the font can either be on your system, probably in a fonts folder somewhere, or embedded in the document. In this case, the font in question, and I believe the way I found out what the font was was yeah, there was a list of them, know? of course, in the Adobe Reader. Well, I think what I did is I actually highlighted the font, and then I think I went into Microsoft Office and pasted it. Okay. Or I could have just gone through methodically and looked at all the ones that Adobe Reader said was in there. And uh, now here is the, uh, I don't know if we could have evil music. No, it's not evil. But but it, Microsoft caused the problem. I'll, I'll wag my finger at them because okay. it's Cal- Calibri. Okay. So that, Calibri that was the font. is okay. a Microsoft font because it is in the library fonts Microsoft folder. Okay. And it is a, a, a Windows true type font. So how do you solve the problem? How do you make it so that previous, do we have to get a new version of Calibri or is there some other no. workaround? And that was a weird thing. So I opened it on two different machines that had two different versions of the Calibri front, or at least they had different version numbers or dates when I did a get info. Here's how I solved the problem. And I kind of thought back to how fonts, at least how I think they work or how they should work. Yep is that you can't always assume that everybody has every font that you... Well, what you're pointing out, Dave, embedding a font is a way to guarantee that everybody can see all the fonts that you package in a document. But for whatever reason, if it's either a well-known font, then you'll assume, you know, in certain ones, you know, Helvetica and things like that, you'll assume that everybody pretty much has those installed on, whether it's a Mac or a PC. Right. And the other thing is that your file is going to get really huge, uh, if you keep embedding fonts. Got it. But here's the problem is a lot of times what happens is that if a font cannot be found and it's not embedded, then either the application or the OS, and I'm not exactly sure which, because I'll tell you what I did here. Well, I did one thing and there's a better way to do it. So I okay. said, you know what? Let me just take Calibri and nuke it. Okay. Totally deleted from the system. Well, actually I didn't do that. I archived it. Okay. And then put it somewhere else, which essentially made it invisible to the system, restarted it. Then restarted the system, opened up the document in preview, and voila, the text was there. 
So what font did it use? Uh, you know, it used another one. Okay, so oh, it substituted it, it substituted a font in presumably based on some parameters in the uh, yes. in the PDF embed that says, look, use the, or the PDF code that says use Calibri. But if it's not Calibri, then what I want is, you know, you know, some serif font or sans right. serif It was a font. very similar. Yeah. It was another Microsoft font that was okay. similar. I think it also began with C. I don't remember the exact name. Okay. But either the app or the OS said, all right, you know, the fallback plan is if this font's not here, then display something else. Cool. And in this case, for whatever bizarre reason, it worked for him. Interesting. So the solution. Now, a better solution to this is that if you go into font book, which is the utility that's included with Mac OS ten. Yep. That so. lets you manage and look at your fonts. So there's a better way to disable a font, Dave. Okay. And that's you go into font book. Yes. And you uh, and you right click on a font and you can say disable. Oh, that's handy. Or you could say remove if you really want to. Sure. Uh, but he, he did the same thing by disabling it. So that's a kinder, gentler way yeah. to uh, take a font out of the equation and see if the system will jump in there and, and replace it with something else. Now, my other suggestion is you could tell all the people, because I think this is a default font on Windows systems, especially if you're running uh, Outlook. It, I said, well, you could tell everybody. Word, it's a word thing, I think. It's, oh, okay. It's, okay. It's common in Word. It's like, you know, Calibri and Cambria and Myriad and Cambria is the one that, that, that replaced. Okay. 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 So I guess they're similar. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, Word uses them in style templates or something like that. So this is a weird one, but it was consistent across all my computers. And actually, uh, David said he actually wrote to our friend Adam, uh, Adam to ask Christensen? him about this. Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, and Great he podcast, by the way, this. the MacCast. If you, if, you know, I, I was going to say if you oh. like podcasts, but if, if you're listening here, my hope is that you like podcasts. Oh, and Adam's a, a great guy, too. Adam is a great guy. And, and actually, what I did is I just to verify this. So maybe it was just something weird with my systems here. But I, I sent the PDF off to uh, Adam. And he ran across the exact same problem. Oh, very interesting. So, and I think, I, I assume you would run across. So, yeah, I'm sure I would. Yeah. The constants here are Calibri and Preview. Huh. Under the current OS, for whatever reason. Yeah, Preview, just, Preview does some weird stuff. It's not, it's fast. And, and clearly Apple has uh, prioritized speed with Preview over 100% compatibility because it's not, there are some things that Preview and really anything that relies on preview, including all the quick look stuff that you'd get from inside mail or, or what have you, uh, or even in the finder, it's all the same technology and it's fast. It's really fast for PDFs, but sure. uh, way faster than Acrobat reader and Acrobat reader has gotten better, but it's nowhere near the speed of preview. However, that, that speed comes at the occasional cost. And, and there's just little glitches where if a PDF isn't built exactly the way that preview thinks it, it's supposed to be, it, you know, out the window it goes. All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear from Todd. Todd, uh, we've got a couple of comments based on the last show, 322. Hi, guys. This is Todd from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I was listening to Mac Geek Gab. I think it was 322 where one of your uh, one of your listeners was asking about a way to check the speed of transferring files between two hard disks, etc. And was looking for something. Well, I have the answer. The name of the uh, name of the program is Forklift. It's not an extension. It's kind of similar to Pathfinder in that it'll give you a tabbed tabbed browsing. It 
will uh, it will allow you to have two two separate panes so that you can copy or move things in between. It'll also do all sorts of other things like FTP and all kinds of great stuff. Um, take a look at it. It's a uh, it's called Forklift. I think it's version. Uh, I don't remember the version, but check it out. Here's where you cut me off. You are cut off. So cool. All right. That's uh, yeah from binarynights.com. So you know there you go. That yeah. answers that. It does. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, another comment that we got about last week. Actually, we got a lot of comments about this. Uh, we talked at the end of three or sometime somewhere in there in 322. We talked about an app called Podcaster, an iOS app that makes life easy for uh, pulling down. It's a self-contained podcast management and listening app for your uh, iPhone makes it really easy to download podcasts and not have to sync to iTunes to get them onto your iPhone. And we get a lot of comments about uh, from people about this. And and so there the, the Andrew's email kind of pulls them all together. He said uh, podcaster was mentioned as an app for the iPhone to download podcasts in Mac Geek F322. I have used it, but changed to an app called RSS radio, which comes as a universal app, meaning it gets full screen on the iPad, which I like a lot better. Uh, he says one problem for both is that you can't get Mac Geek Gab premium as you need iTunes to deliver the username and password. Okay. So let's, let's address these two issues uh, separately. Uh, so RSS radio was one. Uh, another app that many people mentioned is called Instacast. Uh, and I haven't checked out either one of them, but I figured I'd, I'd share those here and, and probably will check them out uh, and, and we'll take it from there. I mean, I think Instacast is 99 cents or dollar 99 or something like that. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's that. Uh, as far as the password. So here's something interesting. If you have a password to log into a website, which is essentially what you need for Mac geek gab premium, uh, you can, in many cases, and certainly in this case, build it into the URL. Now, doing this is uh, insecure, assuming the program sends the URL in the clear, which in this case, it almost certainly would. Uh, but you, you can do it. And and so in, uh, you know, in either Instacast or Podcaster, Podcaster actually has a way of, of you click login and it'll build this URL for you. But the format is http colon slash slash and then instead of just typing you know www dot whatever macobserver.com or whatever the whatever the url is that you want to log into you put http colon slash slash and then your username the colon your password an at sign and then the rest of the url so if the url is www.site.com slash resource it would be you know Username colon password at www.site.com slash resource. And uh, and that'll log in and that will work for for Mac Geek Gab Premium. So if you have somewhere where you can put a URL into the program manually, that's where you can do it. Now, you know, fair warning, you're storing this in this program. It's going to be sent in the clear, but iTunes sends it in the clear. So presumably you're OK with that. Uh, but uh, but no that if you use some app that stores all your subscriptions up on some cloud server, well, then your username and password is being stored somewhere outside of your device. So, you know, eyes wide open, make sure you know what you're doing. Some of this stuff might be totally fine, but always good to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any, uh, any thoughts on that, John? Nope. Nothing. You gotta have something, nothing. 
Well, no, nothing. I'm 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 a simple guy when it comes to uh, signing up for podcasts. All right, that's good. iTunes. It's... Yeah. Well, you know, as we said last time, the nice part about something like any of these apps is the ability to subscribe and download on the road without having to muck about mm-hmm. with uh, with syncing or Apple's funky little iTunes podcaster app, etc., etc. John. Let's say people wanted to get in touch with us and send in their own questions or have their own tips or their own comments or really anything they want to share. How would you recommend that they do that? Why? Oh, but how? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that you send us an email because everybody has email or almost everybody. If you want to send us an email, you would send it to feedback at MacGeekab.com. John, you got every bit of that right, except it's feedback at MacGeekab.com. All right, I'll go with you this time. <laughs> and if you don't have email, here's another thing. You can pick up the telephone. And What's if you that? picked up the telephone, well, it's this thing that you talk into and you can hear people talk back to you, but that's not important. And the, the phone number, if you did have the telephone, would be 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. You can, of course, Skype us to MacGeekGab, and that will get through on our voicemail. And uh, iTunes comments. Thanks for those of you that went in and added some. And if you haven't added one and you're, uh, you're in front of a computer with iTunes up, just click on the link and go into... Uh, Go into iTunes and uh, in, uh, in the store there and add a comment about us. We we would very much appreciate it. It helps helps spread the word, which is of course good for all of us because it's what uh, what keeps us going here. So that's a good thing. Anything else, John? Before we roll this one out. Yeah, Twitter. I'm John Efron. Dave Hamilton is Dave Hamilton. Mackie Gab is Mackie Gab. Pilot Pete, who's off being a pilot somewhere, I think, is Pilot Pete. He, yeah, he uh, he had a rough day down there in Memphis. There was a, a tough storm coming through. Thankfully, he was on the ground when it came through and, and is safe. So that's that's a good thing. Excellent. Yeah, Michael Johnston, uh, who is Michael Johnston on Twitter, is also the host of the We Have Communicators podcast. He takes this show and converts it into AAC for you. So you get all those links and images and all of that stuff that makes your life easier uh cashfly of course we want to thank them as well for providing all the bandwidth the podcast marketplace full of people that are ever deserving of our thanks our sponsors and our, our marketplace sponsors are the a2 desktop speakers from audio engine you know jimbo from barebones software text expander from smile and notebook from circusponies.com all through backbeat media and folks that's it on Thursday with our premium show. You can subscribe to premium. It's 25 bucks for six months. You get two extra episodes, access to the archives, and that warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you've supported your two favorite podcasters. And most of all, you won't get caught. (laughs) 